Listeners like you keep the Historian's Podcast on the internet by donating to our fund drive. Please click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. Hi, uh, my name is David Levine. I am a freelance writer who uh, lives in Albany, New York, and I recently published a book called The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. This is a collection of articles and essays that I wrote over the last decade or so as a contributing writer, mainly for Hudson Valley Magazine and Westchester Magazine. Also, there's a couple of things I did for some other magazines as well, but they're all about the Hudson Valley. I trace the history of the region all the way back to when dinosaurs ruled the Earth through the Ice Age and uh, what that left behind that made the Hudson Valley what it is through the first native peoples to inhabit the land, and then, of course, through European contact and colonial times, the American Revolution, and all the way through to modern times. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're talking with David Levine, author of The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. You have a lot of stories in there, but one that this friend of mine used to say, you're going to knock me over with a feather. I mean, I don't go there a lot. I've gone through a lot on the train. My daughter used to work there at the local newspaper. I didn't realize that Hudson, New York, used to be a place where they would get in their boats and leave and go out to the ocean and hunt whales. Exactly. That was one of the most interesting stories that I ever reported either. I, I too did not know that. But in fact, Hudson, New York was essentially a farm community of about 10 families around the uh, time of the Revolutionary War until the British sort of put a, a, a block on the whaling industry out of New England with the business sort of shut down. A bunch of Nantucket whaling executives, if you will, started looking for a place where they could send boats out where they could escape you know, the British blockade, and they sailed up and down the uh, northeast coast and eventually all the way up the Hudson River until they came to what they, be- they renamed as Hudson, New York. It had a bay that was deep enough to um, put their whaling ships, so they bought the land from the patroons, and they essentially mm-hmm. built a company town from scratch. Like I said, it was just farmland, and they laid out a grid of streets, they brought in all the businesses that whaling needed, like rope makers and sail makers and plubber boilers. Uh, there were more than a few saloons, of course, to uh, keep the men happy. Mm-hmm. And yes, for about 60 years, Hudson, and to a lesser extent, some of the other towns up and down the valley, uh, were a very important whaling center for America, when whaling was you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, industries uh, in the world. Yeah, whaling is a big deal. Was this time period when they did the whaling there, um, when the when the Dutch controlled the the colony? No, no, no. This was this was um, during and just after the Revolutionary War. So the English had been here for a long time. These were these were English and then American whaling people. So it was it was way past the Dutch time here. What happened to the whaling center? Uh, uh, because they don't do that anymore. Of course, they don't do that anymore anyway. But Right. Basically, the same reasons it died out you know, from New England. The whale blubber became less valuable. The costs of hunting whales were uh, prohibitive, and, and the whole industry just kind of disappeared. And the same thing happened here. So as, as it became economically uh, unfeasible, 
you know, it just kind of died out. But by then, Hudson was one of the biggest cities in New York. It stayed that way for a long time. And also, you gave me a little, because we, I don't want to tell tales out of school, but we did a pre-interview about this this topic. It used to be called Claverick Center, Hudson, you said, right? Claverick Landing, Claverick Landing. Landing. Yes, and, and uh, the the people who wanted to turn it into a, a whaling town didn't want that old Dutch-sounding name. They wanted something uh, different, basically, and more English, and they settled on the name Hudson. George Clinton, who was the governor at the time, wanted it to be called Clinton, but he was outvoted. <laughs> but he got, a few towns, he got other towns named after him, so he worked out, it worked out okay for him. Well, I tell you this, uh, sounds like your, your book, to some extent, is a question answerer, uh, even if you don't think you know the question. For example, let's talk about Alexander Hamilton, who had a lot of ties to the Hudson Valley, it would seem to me. I mean, it's his wife who was a Schuyler, and he had to go up to Albany to court her and, and so on and so forth. I've heard the tale, and many of us have, that Alexander Hamilton ultimately had his life cut short because he and Aaron Burr had a duel, and Burr shot Hamilton, and eventually Hamilton died. And the reason Burr called for the duel or wanted the duel was because Alexander Hamilton supposedly had said some bad things about Aaron Burr. Here's the question. Where did he say those bad things? Right. That is the question. And it happens to be in Albany. He was at a dinner party with a, a famous politician uh, at their, his house, a judge actually, down on Lower State Street. If the numbers are sort of correct, it's about where Jack Philister House is now. This is a private um, home, and he was at a dinner, and he said some nasty things, you know, just gossiping. Aaron Burr was not a particularly well-liked person. It's not like he was the only one. But somehow his comments got published into the New York newspapers. And, of course, this being the age of honor, uh, Aaron Burr couldn't stand for that and challenged him to a duel, which, of course, was famously held in Weehawken, New Jersey. Um, But it was his comments in Albany that set the whole thing in motion. And you mentioned Jack's Restaurant. I mean, I've always, over the years, haven't been there in a while, but I love Jack's Restaurant. I used to work across the street when I worked for the State University who has offices downtown. So at first I thought you were telling me that maybe she he said these things at Jack's, but no, it was this private home uh, that years later became Jack's Restaurant. Yeah, Jack's is old, but it's not that old. <laughs> no, that's so true. It was, it was back when Albany, of course, was a small town, and that was just a private residence. And it's hard to tell exactly where it was because the numbering of the streets has changed and, and you know, the layouts and stuff has changed. But best I can figure, that's about where it was. Now, the book is called The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years, and you pay more th- than lip service to that, the 250 million years. You go back to the age of the dinosaurs. How do you know about what the dinosaurs were doing there? That's one of my favorite stories as well, because I love thinking about the fact that that far ago, as we all know, you know, back then there were no continents. It was all just one big landmass. And, and this land that we're sitting on right now was sort of in what is now the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and down closer to the equator because over the last 250 million years, of course, the continents separated and, and sailed apart, and we moved sort of north and west. But back then, when this land was down there, it was all part of one big landmass called Pangaea, and the dinosaurs roamed, and of course they lived and died, and they left fossils behind. 
And though this area is not particularly rich in fossils, there are enough that have been discovered for paleontologists and, and experts to have figured out what life was like here. I open the story with a, a creature called the uh, Gralator, and I sort of paint an imaginary scene where this creature is running around eating things and leaving footprints in the mud. Uh, and in fact, footprints like that are currently at the New York State Museum. They were found down in Ulster County. So that gives us a sense of what kind of animals and other um, flora and fauna remains that have been found here give an idea of what this area was like back then. Now, of course, there was no Hudson River at that point. There were huge mountains at times on either side of us. Connecticut was a mountain range that may have been as big as the Himalayas and certainly probably as big as the Alps. So 250 million years is a long time, and that shows you what uh, can change over that period of time. Connecticut's now just lovely rolling hills, but at one point it was some serious mountains. And dinosaurs and creatures like them uh, inhabited the waters and the lands that we stand on. And, and, and it's really a cool thing, for me anyway, it's a cool thing mm, to think sure. about. Now, know, what was this dinosaur that you wrote, the write about, the, the specific dinosaur you wrote about? It's, it's called the Gralator. <laughs> it's um, it's a, a bipedal creature that was about, uh, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was, sure. you know, about the size of a, you know, a small Volkswagen maybe. Um, and it was a meat eater. It was fairly common in this area. Uh, fossils of this kind of dinosaur have been found all over the uh, eastern seaboard, including here. But again, these kind of dinosaurs were almost everywhere, which is, you know, fascinating. And it's kind of mm -hmm. why you can find dinosaur remains here and in Australia and in Mongolia, and they're similar because back then, you know, there was no continental separation, so these creatures were everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so there were no Tyrannosauruses, as far as we know, in this area, but there were lots of other cool dinosaurs. David Levine's book is The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. You, uh, I mean, this actually is after the dinosaurs, I believe. You talk about the glaciers and uh, the... Albany pine bush. How do those two things relate? Right. As we move a little bit closer to modern times, you know, the glaciers that covered the, the, the northern part of the globe for a long time finally receded about 10 to 15,000 years ago, which, you know, that, that's yesterday in geological mm -hmm. time. Sure. And it's, it's that uh, time period that really carved the land around us. It's what left the river, it's what left the lakes that are behind, it, it shaped the mountains and the valleys, and it created a lot of the waterfalls and, you know, important landscapes that make the Hudson Valley what it is. In fact, the whole Hudson River Art School, which is the first modern art school to generate here in the United States, you know, was all about nature and the mountains and the valleys and the trees and the big skies and the waterfalls, and that's all because the glaciers left them behind. The Albany Pine Bush is another fascinating story. Um, people, uh, you know, who have visited there know it's kind of an unusual area. The soil is sandy, and, and, and why is that? Well, because back after the glaciers left, most of where we're sitting was underwater. There was a huge lake called Lake Albany. I mean, we call it Lake Albany. There were no humans at that point. But it was a huge lake that stretched basically from Lake George all the way down to where New York City is. And it's uh, from the middle of the eastern counties to the middle of the western counties along the river. When that lake started to dry up and, and recede, it left behind a sandy bottom, like lakes often do. 
And the sand from that was deposited on the west, around where Schenectady is now, blew by the western winds into Albany County and collected in that particular area. So for many, many thousands of years, it was essentially a desert. And one geologist told me the only thing that was missing were camels. It looked very much like any <laughs> desert you'd find in the Mideast. It was wow. that dry. Now, over the thousands of years, of course, vegetation has grown back. And uh, in the last 100 years, <laughs> shopping malls and parking lots have covered it up. But what is left, if anybody visits, is the remnants of the bottom of Lake Albany that was blown into this area by the west winds many, many thousands of years ago, thanks to the glaciers. It's all still connected. When, when did people show up in the Hudson Valley? People showed up, the first natives, around the time that the glaciers were receding. So probably 10,000 years ago, give or take, uh, the first, not fossils, but remnants of, of their existence start showing up, up and down the valley. Uh, they came from the west, essentially, and then inhabited the Susquehanna Valley of Pennsylvania, and various groups then moved continuing north and east until they settled this area, and they lived here. So let's say 10,000 years, uh, very peacefully, most of the time. Um, there were, of course, skirmishes with, with native peoples to the west and to the east, but the main group that lived here were called the Lenape Mohicans. These were Mohicans and Lenapes, and they lived up and down the valley. Uh, they were migratory. They would you know, move to the river during the summer and fish, and then they would move inland during the winters, and um, again, lived peacefully and harmoniously for 10,000 years until white people showed up, and within 200 years, most of them were gone, dead, mm. or shipped out. Now, also, we, we call the river, the Hudson River, after this, I believe, English explorer who was working for the Dutch, quote-unquote, discovered it, but I imagine other people knew it was there. But what did the Mohegans call the river? Right. They called it um, the Mahikanatuck, which is kind of where the word Mohican comes from. And uh, that is translated basically into the river that runs two ways or the river that is never still, which is another fascinating remnant of the glaciers. As people in the area know, it, the Hudson Valley, at least from Albany and Troy south, is more, uh, it's better called an estuary than a river because it's tidal. So uh, when the tide comes in, the river runs north, and when the tide goes out, the river runs south. So they knew it as the river that runs two ways. Um, unfortunately, we have lost a lot of our connection to the river, and we don't notice it as much. But if you go and watch the tide, you see the river run north, and then you mm. see the river run south, which is unusual. Um, but again, it's really an estuary. It's almost like a fjord from... Um, Scandinavia. I mean, do you know what the difference is between a fjord and an estuary, or is there a difference? I don't know, and I wouldn't want to guess, but I, I'm pretty sure most fjords are estuaries. Maybe not all of them are, so you'd, you'd have to ask an expert on that, but I know ours is. <laughs> okay, uh, and again, our focus has been, to a great extent, uh, in the Mohawk Valley, and a different group of Native Americans, the Iroquois, and in particular the Mohawks. I know the Mohawks and the Mohegans fought quite a bit, it seemed to me. They did. They had their, they had their moments, like I said. Um, there were battles. And then there was another group in Connecticut called the Mohegans, 
um, which are, I mean, um, yeah, the Mohegans, which were not the same as the Mohicans. And they all, the uh, local Mohicans had some battles with them as well. But I, I don't know for a fact that it was all-out warfare. I think, it, you know, it sort of probably flared up and then flared back, kind of like humans have been doing throughout <laughs> the history of humans. Um, but yeah, they they weren't they weren't best friends. That's for sure. Mm-hmm, sure. Well, then eventually, as you said, white people showed up, European settlers, and uh, how is it that the Dutch settled this part of uh, what we call America? Well, as you mentioned, that that fella who named the river after his room, the river was named after, he showed up in 1609. Uh, he was working for the Dutch, so he claimed the land. And within a few years, there was a Dutch colony, New Amsterdam, down in uh, lower Manhattan. And they ruled the place for whatever it was, 60 years or so. It was strictly business. You know, it was a colony that they exploited for natural resources. They immediately got into skirmishes and then all-out wars, excuse me, with the natives. Um, So, you know, that started almost as soon as Europeans showed up, the uh, natives even though they were welcoming for the most part and, and wel- welcomed the uh, newcomers to share their land, the Europeans decided they weren't sharing, that they were taking it, and that caused all kinds of problems. And some of the first Indian wars, as they become to be known, were here. You know, we think of the West as the great uh, massacre of the, of the Native peoples, but uh, many of the first battles were right here. The Esopus Wars of the 1600s were between the Dutch and the Esopus Indians down around New Paltz. And there were other uh, skirmishes, as you know, you know, out in Schenectady, there were prob- not problems, there, were, there was outright warfare between the uh, intruders and the natives. So that started from the beginning. And in fact, that's one of the main reasons the Dutch decided to leave and give the land back over to the uh, English, because they were just tired of the hassles of, of running this place. They didn't really have the manpower or the resources, and uh, they decided enough was enough, and they... As I say, they gave the keys to the kingdom to the sure. English in uh, in a pretty much bloodless takeover. Uh, well, if, if I could, <laughs> we uh, recently uh, did an interview with a man I've come to know over the years named Charlie Gehring. Do you know Charlie? I do not, no. No. Charlie Gehring is the translator of the old Dutch records. He works at the New York State Library in Albany. Uh, and his book's been used by a lot of scholars and authors. Uh, and the one that's the most famous author is Russell Shorto, who did a book on Manhattan called The Island at the Center of the World. We just did an interview. We just did a podcast with Charlie. It seems that he has a more, what shall I say, nuanced <laughs> nuanced uh, view of the Dutch. He says, well, the you know people always say the Dutch were just there for business. He said, that wasn't true. They really wanted to have colonies here. And I don't think they just gave up the colony. I mean, they, they did, but it's but the British were there with warships sitting outside of New Amsterdam, and they said, hey, we'd like the colony, please. And, uh, you know, they took, like, capitulated uh, to them. And, and the influence remained strong as time went on, even though the Dutch left. And of course, they left in two stages, right? I mean, they the English took over for a while, then there never really was a war declared, and then the Dutch took it back, and then the English took it finally uh, for good. But well, anyway, do, do you and maybe make a question, you can say whatever, uh, if you have other comments on 
my little speech about Charlie, but um, what do you see as the Dutch influence in the Hudson Valley? Yeah, I mean, t- just to your point, yes, of course, I, I may have been a little glib on that. Of course, it wasn't just a simple, here you go, and it, and it did change hands more than once. But the Dutch influence is still a lot of the names of the towns that we live in um, are still Dutch. Uh, a lot of the words we use, not just here, but of course throughout the country, are Dutch. The actual influence of the Dutch landscape isn't as much. Tulips, of course, are a big deal here. That <laughs> right. may not have been if the, if the Dutch hadn't been here first. There probably wouldn't be a tulip festival in Albany. You know, it's not a huge influence. It's certainly more than any other place in the country. It's the only place in the country that has even Dutch names to a great degree in their towns and their schools and, and all of that. And, of course, you know, the, the legends uh, of Sleepy Hollow and uh, some of the holidays that we celebrate uh, can be directly attributed to the Dutch time and uh, its influence that's still here. Anyway, David Levine is author of The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. Uh, we're, uh, we got just a few minutes left. Let me try to get in some more of the points uh, that uh, I believe you, you can make about this. When we're talking about the European settlers, I just wrote this down. What is the oblong? The oblong is an interesting story. If you've ever wondered why the border between New York and Connecticut isn't straight, and when, as you head down into Westchester County, it takes that kind of left turn and creates a little panhandle that sticks into Westchester. Uh, the reason is because after the Revolutionary War, the borders were not perfectly agreed upon, let's put it that way. And, and they kept shifting, and there was arguments about who owned which part of parcel of land. So at some point, the Connecticut and the New York legislatures decided to settle it once and for all. They awarded New York a strip of land along the border with Connecticut, two miles wide by uh, about 30 miles long, that stretches again from from the northern part of the border down to uh, about where that panhandle is. And that was called the oblong, which is just a fancy word for a rectangle. That was given to New York. And because it was sort of new land, uh, nobody owned it except for the state, and it became kind of an open land grab. So the, the Quakers came in and set up a lot of, of Quaker meeting houses uh, along that area, and uh, they knew it as the Avalon. Now, in return, Connecticut got that little strip of panhandle land uh, in what is now Westchester County, and that became their parcel of land. I don't know that they named it anything, but, but in New York, we call it the Oblong. And there are two uh, bookstores in that area called the Oblong Books Bookstore. So if ah. anybody ever travels to the west, to the, to the uh, east of the Hudson River in that area and stops at Oblong Books, one's in Newburgh, um, that's why it's called Oblong Books. Can you tell us a little bit about African-American Sojourner Truth, who I gather was from Ulster County? She was from Ulster County. People, of course, know her as a, as a great freedom fighter. And um, But what they don't know is that she spent the first 30 years of her life as a slave in Ulster County. Here's a little interesting fact. Getting back to the Dutch heritage, she was owned by a Dutch family and grew up speaking Dutch and spoke with a Dutch accent, accent her whole life. Uh, when, in fact, she was sold to an English family, she was beaten because she couldn't speak English. She was treated, of course, horribly, like most slaves were. Uh, Another lesser-known fact about life in New York State and the Northeast is that 
slavery was a, a serious concern here. We were every bit as much a slave society as the South. We were no better. We, in fact, had more slaves at certain points than many of the southern states. And uh, our economy depended as much on slaves as the southern economy. So anyway, back to Sojourner Truth. Yes, she grew up in Ulster County. She argued for the return of her son, who was sold to a different family, at the Poughkeepsie Courthouse and became, uh, if not the first, one of the first African-Americans to argue, argue successfully for the return of a, a family member in uh, American courts. And then from there, she traveled the country uh, in her quest to secure you know, freedom and, and, and abolish slavery. She never returned after she left this area, but her formative years were here. And I think it's fascinating to think that she spoke with a Dutch accent for the rest of her <laughs> life. David Levine's book is The Hudson Valley, the first 250 million years. Why was the throughway Tappansee Bridge built over such a wide part of the Hudson River? That's a, that's a great story, and it, and it proves that New York politics have always been a mess. Um, so when the throughway was built in the, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, you know, of course, it, it needed to connect with New York City. The problem, at least for the New York, the newly created New York Thruway Authority, was that they were battling with the New York Port Authority. And the Port Authority had jurisdiction all the way up to basically where the Tappan Sea Bridge was built. So the, the Thruway Authority, of course, wanted to build a bridge with tolls, and they needed to collect the money from the tolls. If they built it any further south, all that money would have gone to the Port Authority. So politics being what they were, the the Port Authority said, of course, no, you can't have access to our land. So the closest the throughway people could build access to New York City was at Tappan Zee, which, of course, it just happens to be the widest part of the river where it would cost the most money to, and take the longest amount of time to build a bridge. So it's a, it's a great example of New York politics. It was ever thus. Today, uh, David, the Hudson Valley's known for craft beer making can you tell us about that uh yeah um the valley has become one of the centers for uh as you said craft beer uh rivaling perhaps you know areas in the pacific northwest and and, and california um a lot of that is thanks to the laws that changed in the last 10 or 15 years new york state laws which made it easier and cheaper to get a brewing license um but it, it kind of brings the valley full circle um, beer has been an important part of the Hudson Valley ever since uh, the Europeans arrived. In fact, some people think that uh, Henry Hudson may have had beer on the Half Moon when he came here. Uh, among the first businesses that the Dutch set up were breweries, and of course, uh, the English, um, you know, were, were big brewers. Um, many of the Hudson Valley's most prominent citizens, like Matthew Vassar of Vassar College, made their fortunes through brewing. Um, of course, Prohibition killed that off around here and throughout the rest of the country. But we've been lucky, those of us who like beer, have been lucky to see kind of a renaissance of beer making, um, thanks in no small part to the Valley's rich and fertile, um, you know, growing uh, farming culture so that we can grow wonderful um, grains and hops and uh, also because of places like the Culinary Institute of America, which has drawn a lot of, of foodies to the region. And a lot of those graduates have gone not only to start, you know, great restaurants up and down the valley, but also great beer-making establishments. So 
again, those of us who enjoy beer are, are very fortunate to be in, in one of the great beer-making capitals of the nation. Well, uh, bottoms up, David. <laughs> Cheers, prost, whatever your language of choice is. Okay. David Levine has uh, joined us talking about his book, The Hudson Valley, The First 250 Million Years. He's a freelance writer and editor in Albany, lives in Albany, New York, with his uh, wife and daughter. Please help us keep the Historian's Podcast going with a donation to our 2022 Fund Drive. You can donate via GoFundMe. You'll find that link on our website, bobcudmore.com, or send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.